Good afternoon, everyone. Uh, thanks for joining our session today on breaking barriers of artificial intelligence and machine learning in digital health. I'm thrilled to be serving as the moderator uh, for our panel here today. Uh, that includes Dr. Bradley Erickson from the Mayo Clinic and Elad, the CEO of AI Doc. So the scope of our discussion today is very timely. Uh, the use of artificial intelligence and machine learning applications in healthcare has been marked by excitement and unlimited potential. Uh, the industry is supposed to have an expected growth to reach almost a 45 billion by 2020 and has only been accelerated through the COVID-19 pandemic. The interesting uh, conjecture here is that healthcare organizations and execs seem to be prioritizing AI. Almost 33% of healthcare executives suggested that AI have a strategy for AI in place, and another 15% are planning or creating one according to an annual Optum survey on AI in healthcare. 59% of them are anticipating AI delivering tangible cost savings within three years, a 90% increase in their opinion since 2018. While the benefits of AI are clear, most healthcare industry still sees it behind the curve as only 20% are in the late stages of deployment. So we are gonna to try to uncover this a little further and understand what the future potential holds and how we are going to accelerate these efforts. With that, um, welcome Dr. Bradley Erickson and Elad. Uh, really excited to have you here. Just to kick us off here and get the conversation going, um, let's go around the room and introduce ourselves and uh, help the audience understand why have you engaged in AI and healthcare and what's your experience in this arena? So I'll start, I guess. Um, so I'm uh, Brad Erickson. I'm a neuroradiologist here at Mayo Clinic. Um, I also have a PhD in, in uh, biophysics. And that PhD was on image processing. And, and at the time, back in the 80s, you know, AI was really not very effective. So I went into the, the film conversion to PACS and uh, did some interesting research. But then about 10 years ago, started to get back into the world of machine learning. And obviously that was great timing because things have just taken off since that time. Um, I run a lab now of about 20 postdocs. Um, I also am involved with a spin out of Mayo that focuses on how to uh, help apply these technologies in the practice. So it's a platform technology using intelligent process automation that lets us string all these tools together and make sure that each AI tool has the right technology. Yeah, and um, I'd like to uh, connect to uh, the challenge Dr. Erickson is mentioning, right? I think that the big challenge of making AI work in practice, I think is where a lot of AI technology is today. And that's my, I would say my connection to it. So personally, I'm, uh, if you hear from the accent, uh, I come from an Israeli background. I've headed the artificial intelligence, um, the Israeli Air Force for a few years. Um, and while doing that, I learned that you, you can have the best algorithms in the world, but making it actually work in production um, is a massive lift. I would say it's even, you know, it's 80% of the work uh, in terms of making AI work. And with that, uh, I co-founded 
uh, with that experience, I co-founded ADOC about five years ago, um, being really passionate about, you know, trying to make AI work in the healthcare space. Um, I am I say that we're fortunate today to be one of the leading players in AI uh, that is actually running, uh, raised over $130 million, uh, 250 employees, uh, serving over um, over 500, 600 medical, system, uh, medical centers, and with clinically operational AI that can generate um, insights and action. Uh, maybe I'll give an example just to get a sense of what it is that we do. Um, every, uh, every imaging exam in the facility, let's say CT, MRI, X-ray, is sent to the ADOC engine, uh, which then searches for certain critical findings, let's say brain bleed or stroke or pulmonary embolism. And once identified, we help uh, triage and prioritize those patients as well as notify the clinical specialists. So let's say you have a busy ED with maybe 50 patients coming in in a busy night. Uh, patient number 50 with an actual brain bleed may wait for hours um, in, in a busy ED environment. Uh, with our solutions, those patients can be detected by the AI, shot to the top of the list, and make sure you get uh, and treat those patients right away. And Taruna, I'll may just I finish off by connecting to the first point you mentioned. I am just so excited about this time for AI, to be honest. Um, for my company, I will say we've been deployed at less than a handful of sites two and a half years ago, right? Today, we're over, you know, 600 medical centers. I think the pace of innovation and adoption of these technologies in healthcare are probably, you know, unheard of, and that's a first. And this is why I think it's so important to think about how to do this change management effectively. It is going to be transformational to some extent, and we need to be both uh, mindful um, of those effects, as well as keep thinking about how we keep pushing the envelope um, with this uh, useful technology. Atarun, you are muted. Awesome, thank you so much. So just to build on that, you know, the change management that's necessary to effectively operationalize this technology, uh, Dr. Ba Brad Erickson, if you if you don't mind, can you just build on that? I, I know uh, Mayo has been uh, really building a lot of AI algorithms for a substantial period of time. Could you just walk us through a use case where uh, Mayo has been able to successfully operationalize this in practice and what were um, some of the challenges you've experienced? Sure, there, there are few tools that have been developed in my lab and, and also like in cardiology. And, you know, the part of the challenge starts with how you built the tool. So I was, I was kind of giggling internally when Elad said it's 80% of the effort to deploy it. He's right. But another 80% of it is to build the tool and do all the data cleaning. And a problem is that as we do the data cleaning in order to train the algorithm, that's not real world data anymore. And so that, that's why the other 80% of the problem is that how do you put it into clinical practice? Um, so as an example, we trained one of the algorithms we have for doing body composition on CT scans, but there's been tremendous evolution in the technology of CT scanning over the, the time period that we had used. Furthermore, we have different vendors and, and like many hospitals, we have one preferred vendor for imaging. And so the minority of scans that were not from that vendor didn't perform as well. And then there are other factors like, did they use contrast or not? Um, and then if you're going to start to use the data, 
how do you use that data effectively in a given patient? And, and you know, an example, now I'll point to cardiology. When you start to build predictives and say, this patient has a 10% risk of low output, low output failure, well, what do you do with that? You know, what, what's the number where you then go on to do more invasive imaging? And I think that that's a challenge that particularly people who are not cardiologists struggle with. And similarly for body composition, okay, I can tell you what the uh, amount of muscle is. Is that normal, abnormal? Um, surgeons particularly find it valuable because they've used it enough to say this person you know, has enough muscle, they're robust, I can do a major surgery. But some of the you know, correction factors like gender, like race, are, are still not well understood. And so for those that are real close to the dividing boundary of, yeah, this is okay and this is not, that, that's a real challenge. And, and I think that that's still a piece that we need to understand for probably most AI tools. Yeah. Yeah, um, uh, th that, that's very fascinating, right? I think uh, uh, having a process engineering background, the change management starts from when you actually start building the tool, uh, not after it's built and you're now trying to figure out what's the best way to operationalize it, uh, especially because some of these data sets are not perfect, right? There's the whole diversity component that goes into it and AI are learning algorithms. So Ilad, do you want to build on that a little bit? Sounds like uh, you, know, you have a platform that's really able to provide these solutions to caregivers. Uh, being a startup, how do you really tackle that challenge of engaging the providers right at the inception of even a conceptual uh, AI algorithm? Yeah, I think that's a really that's a really good question. And to be honest, when we when we think about AI, it's you have to engage with clinicians across all the whole spectrum of of making a solution. And internally in, in the company, we kind of speak in three layers. There is the algorithmic layer, which is well, you just want to make sure that you build something that works. There is the product layer, which is how do you bake it into a workflow and make it something that is actually usable. And there is the third layer, which is the solution layer. And what that means for us is that we want to target specific pain points and understand what is, what is the clinical value. So to give an example, if I'm developing a great brain bleed algorithms, you know, so what, right? Like, what am I going to do with that? Is this, you know, in order to enable faster treatment, in order to help avoid misses, in order to prioritize, like what, what it is that you actually do and how do you build that? to solve a pain point. And I think that the engagement with the provider should be across all of those layers, right? So on the data layer, definitely you need to understand the different populations. And sometimes, you know, we're talking about diversity, which I think is incredibly important. And on top of that, you have different settings, right? So pr even prevalence of disease, which immediately should impact algorithms, um, you know, are different between outpatient setting and an inpatient or an ED environment, right? All of those are completely different. So understanding the data variability um, is important. And we typically do a ton of data research uh, just to get, get us started uh, on, on that spectrum, understanding the different you know, populations, how it shifts, like making sure we understand the main uh, variability factors. On the product side, so again, workflow is key, I think, and understanding the different workflows on integrate and, and building that together with the provider, that's also very important. And the third layer, which I think is 
to be honest, I think is somewhat sometimes forgotten by AI, some uh, AI players, right? It's not about building the best algorithm. It's about making the biggest impact for care, right? And that you must have the deep clinical partner to achieve because you can't, that's something that us as industry, we can bring to the table. Like what Mayo Clinic, I think, oftentimes can do is really innovate and in how are they using the algorithms to the best extent. Um, so I think engaging with providers is crucial across all of those different elements, if that makes sense. Perfect. Yeah, that, that, that makes total sense. And I think that's where it's a perfect partnership between provider organizations and some of those technology um, uh, data scientists components of the spectrum. So just to move us to, um, you know, a different uh, level of this conversation, right? I, I, when I when we kicked off this, uh, this session, I talked about how only 20% are probably at the point where they are ready to be scaled, integrated within the, within the clinical practice. Um, and, you know, there's this um, old, uh, old philosophy, right? It's almost like bed to bench to bedside, even in clinical research uh, within the lab, it takes almost about 20 years. But to some extent, we can argue that that was challenged with the COVID-19 vaccine. Um, what does that look like from uh, once the AI algorithm is prov providing the level of precision necessary to really implementing it in the practice? Uh, what does that time scale look like? Uh, maybe let's start to unwind some of the challenges you run into in really making it scalable beyond change management, right? There, there's policy uh, that plays into it. There is the legal complications that are associated with it. So uh, if you want to kind of from your experience, elaborate a little more on that. We'll start with you, Elad. Yeah, so I would differentiate the two levels, right? So the first phase is developing a use case. Um, and, and for example, now we're talking like a lot of our solutions are across AI triage. So developing that use case is typically like the first time you're doing that. That's pretty long, I would say. It takes about a year and a half because you need to build, even like you need to build with the FDA. How do you regulate something like that? How do you get this? And we were, you know, the first with our type of solutions. So that was, that was, that took a while for the first solution. But then it scales fairly easily because once you identify the use case, then you can scale across multiple diseases, right? So we're doing triage. Okay, so we serve with brain bleeds and now we want to do pulmonary embolism and spine fractures and whatever. And that is actually much more efficient these days. And we're talking about, you know, for us from concept to FDA clearance is about a year, I would say. And we can do multiple in parallel. So it takes, I would say about, six months to develop and validate, and then another six months to go through FDA clearance and kind of build build a product around it. So hopefully that answered our experience. I think, and maybe I'll add one more note. I think that's what's exciting about AI is the scalability. It's not just that you can create something that is more accurate today. It's also that you build an engine that you can easily scale. You feed it data across a specific use case and you can easily scale it across multiple pathologies. And I think it's, it's, a, it's a massive difference than you had image processing even you know, 10 years ago where you had to build the features and kind of build a, a unique algorithm for each disease. Um, that takes a lot of time and effort and really makes it hard to scale. With AI, you basically build this engine, then you just feed data, get algorithms. 
Um, and even for us, as an example, we scaled from, again, from one to 12 solutions at this point in the span of about two and a half years. So it's really fast uh, growth in terms of in, ter in terms of number of solutions that are available. So I think that it's a combination of shortening of the length as well as the ability to paralyze those, um, which makes the innovation in this space uh, more uh, accelerated. Awesome. So Ella, just to build on that, you said that you've been able to scale almost about 12 algorithms, right? From And I'm understanding it's from really the concept to FDA clearance to get it into the market. Um, what are the key characteristics of the most successful algorithms out there, right? I can, I, I can imagine some of them break into the market sooner than others uh, for a variety of reasons. Could you like reflect a little more on what are some of those themes you're observing already? Yeah, I think that two, two things. So the first is, uh, is not on the AI side, is actually on the ROI side. So the more direct the value is, uh, the easier it is to uh, to sell it. And in AI, you're building these new clinical pathways, and so, and oftentimes there is value, but the the question is how easy it is to prove that value, right? And how much of it is education, or they're already aware that there is a pain point. So those that have fairly direct and clear ROI, like acute product, let's say stroke, pulmonary embolism those typically go um, faster because the market already understand that there is the pain point in those fields that AI can help solve. Um, and the second thing, which is sometimes, which is also interesting, I think prevalence of disease also plays into that. Uh, it's kind of a related point, but in terms of user engagement, it's hard to really get the users hooked for something that appears, you know, once every, you know, once a month. Even though there may be massive value in that, don't get me wrong, but getting people kind of engaged with a new technology, it's more difficult. So getting something that is actually prevalent enough, uh, also we find that that helps uh, adoption. Um, Dr. Erickson, your perspective on that, uh, having run a massive uh, pro research program uh, and then also supporting some of the platform work uh, at Mayo Clinic, what what's your take on this? Like, how do you really differentiate between what is a great research algorithm, uh, which has good research potential, but not the lowest hanging fruit to implement into practice because it's going to be a challenge. So what what's your take on that? So I tend to partition the AI problems into several spaces. I think that there are some applications that are sort of like screening or, or triage, like what Elad mentioned, where you're looking for a finding and you know, making sure that you get that right is a critical thing. The advantage for that is that the data collection is relatively straightforward to do, the clinical implementation is relatively straightforward to do, and the clinical application you know, what does the doctor need to do about it is straightforward. So I think that's a great place to start. I think another area that is pretty straightforward is what we call segmentation, which is essentially defining the contours of things that you see in the image, right? So this is the liver, these are the kidneys, these are the heart or whatever. There's a lot of quantitative work that's done in radiology. And I think that that's another low hanging fruit area 
it's something that most people really don't find intellectually stimulating to do, but it's something that's really important to do. Um, it's important because a lot of diseases are essentially diagnosed based on measurements. Um, cardiac output, right? If you have low cardiac output, you know, that puts you into a certain category of diseases, or if your total heart volume is above X, that puts you into certain diseases. Um, we've done a lot of work with a disease called polycystic kidney disease, where you do the height adjusted total kidney volume. And depending on that number, that tells you you should be treated with drug X or not. So that's kind of another, I think, low hanging fruit area. One that's, I think, going to be the kind of the next generation is what's called multimodal AI. And this is where you start to combine multiple types of information together. And these are problems that today humans still beat AI. One example problem that we work on is trying to figure out progression of brain tumors. So it used to be that you would just measure the size of the tumor. And if it's getting bigger, that's getting worse. Well, with some of the new agents, that actually is no longer true, that you have these paradoxical responses where, in fact, you can get more enhancement, more mass effect, and it turns out that those patients actually do the best. But it happens within a certain time range in a certain part of the treatment uh, scale, and you need to know what's happening with the drug doses. So you can't just send the MR scan and have it figure that out we think, or at least, you know, so far, nobody's been able to show that. But we think that by adding in information about showing where the treatment field was, what the timing of the radiation was, what their dose of temozolomide is, and whether it's going up or down in steroids, we probably can get, oh, and then also the MGMT marker, right? So now you need a much more sophisticated platform to pull all that information together. And, and you know, that's, that's one of the unique challenges and that's where I think this, this platform technology I mentioned is, is going to be kind of the next thing that's required. We do all that integration of information today with SQL for building the training data set. But when you go to implement it into clinical practice, SQL is not going to be the tool that you're, that you're going to use. You're going to need a different type of technology. And so I think that that's how I tend to categorize things is, you know, we've got some of the straightforward ones where it's just the images, just measure the size of something. But now as you start to get more like what human decision making is, where you integrate multiple types of information, that's going to be a lot more challenging. Um, the FDA is going to have to try to figure out how do, you know, how, how do I count not only the image data, but also this other types of information that comes in and, you know, are those units all identical? Um, I'm struck by um, one of the large EMR vendors has a tool for identifying sepsis and they say, yeah, we've trained it on data from around the world, but you need to retrain it on your local hospital data and you got to retrain it. Right. So there are problems of drift. There are problems with how data is collected and, you know, images tend to be fairly objective, but, you would think a, a drug dose or that would be uh, objective or a temperature measurement would be objective. But there are clear, subtle elements of this that we don't understand or that we're not recognizing that we need to be very mindful of as we start to put these tools into practice. That's awesome. Uh, you know, I, I think as I, as I listen to your responses, there are like three key themes uh, that almost surface right it's like how do we prove 
the return on investment on some of these AI algorithms? What's the scalability of these AI algorithms, right? To your point about do they need to be customized every time? And then what's the validity of the model at that point, right? Um, and, and then the third thing I'm hearing is that whole risk of false positives and false negatives. And how is that going to play into really execution of these algorithms? Where if it's just, you know, from an operational excellence standpoint, if it's just triaging patients to the right provider, probably more acceptance compared to a brain tumor decision that's completely uh, being driven by an AI algorithm. Uh, that's awesome. So just to build on that a little further, I think we we have focused more around adoption by clinicians and caregivers, right? But uh, healthcare environment is really complex, especially in the United States, right? Where consumers don't necessarily pay for it. And there are a whole bunch of stakeholders we need to work with when it comes to payers, when it comes to pharmacists. There is there is a wealth of stakeholders that need to really buy into some of this. So, tell me more about what you're seeing, um, Elad, with your products or Dr. Erickson within Mayo Clinic, right? Like, how is this value proposition really being brought to the forefront, not just for adoption by clinicians, but the broader society, including the patients? I'll start. Are you there, you? Yeah. If you want to go, we'll start with you. I'm, okay. Um, uh, yes. Yeah, so I think that's a really, really good question. And uh, I'll just, our perspective on this is that the value chain is really broken down and siloed oftentimes. And it's very difficult. You know, I'll give just an example to kind of get the sense. Let's say I can triage, um, I can uh Reduce time to treatment for stroke patients. Okay, let's say that you know that's what my AI does. Well, who, who's gonna who's gonna pay for this, right? So on the one hand, you're gonna start with the, the clinicians. What, why would they care about this? Well, they could care maybe because it's quality of life, they have easy, better workflow, right? But they don't get immediate ROI. So, but then you go to the health systems. Well, now they're talking about better outcomes for their patients, more interventions. Okay, now you're getting some ROI but then you're getting to the payer. The, the payer, look at this completely different. Can you reduce the total claims cost, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And we have all these you know, unique models where today health systems, some, some have value-based arms. So they somewhat risk-based, but somewhat not. So agree with you that the value chain and the complexity are, are definitely barriers to adoption. And I think the solution today is at least that you need to carefully craft the value to each of the different stakeholders. So. Even for, I have literally uh, 10 different decks depending on who I speak with. Not because the solution is different. The solution is the same, but each time I need to focus on a different angle. And in terms of clinical research, by the way, I need to have like a massive, we need to do dozens and dozens of clinical trials, each to validate a different point in the value chain, the accuracy on the one hand, and then the impact on turnaround time, and then the impact on stay, and then the impact on total claims. And you, you need to have all of those different pieces in mind in order to really uh, engage the market and this is why I think that AI adoption is really dependent on, on both industry and the clinical ecosystem getting this right and being able to translate um, these algorithms into kind of the understanding of the full value chain. Um, and you've mentioned this at the beginning, the, the combination of the clinical providers with, with industry, I think that's incredibly important because this is what clinicians can do well. They can translate 
technology and innovation into real world value and understand how health should be delivered, you know, 10, 15 years from now. So um, no easy answers here, but uh, I will say that from our experience, it must cater to all of those different points. Um, the one that is, I think, relatively missing today, and I think should be changed is the patient. I think right now the decision-making does not involve the patient that much. It's provider, payer, um, administrator, physician. Um, but I think the patient should have more exposure to what AI does. And I think it will shift over the next three to five years. Yeah, I, I don't disagree with anything that's said there. You know, I think that the ability to measure the impact of AI is a challenge, right? I mean, if you're really gonna do it in a truly scientific fashion, it means you gotta have something like a fake AI report. And, you know, that that's gonna have some ethical issues. But, you know, having said that, there was one very nice study done, just published maybe a week or two ago out of the UK, looking at the value of large vessel obstructions. So, you know, basically the big vessels inside your head that cause a stroke. And ultimately what they found is that across the UK, um, LVO detection AI software probably would save something like $11 million. Now, there are a lot of assumptions built into that. How often do radiologists miss it? How often will the AI pick those up? But also all the cost of care, the value of quality adjusted life years and so on. Now, in the end, you know, I was actually kind of surprised $11 million across the whole UK is not that much. Um, on the other hand, if I was one of those patients who was positively affected, you know, I know which one I'm picking, right? So, you know, to bring it back to Eli's point about the patients, you know, we, we can't have everything be focused on dollars. I think, though, that third-party payer engagement is valuable because that is a metric that we can all understand, right? Even if it would have been a negative $11 million in that study, would that have said, oh, we should never use AI? Well, probably not, right? There are a lot of human factors that come into it. There are a lot of assumptions that come into it. There's the constantly arching tide of technology. You know, it's getting better. Oh, but by the way, the cost of drugs is going up. So that moves it negative again. It's an extremely complex problem. That's a long-winded way of saying, we clinicians generally have a sense of this is the right thing to do. And, you know, again, talking with patients, some patients love AI technology, some don't trust it. And you have to kind of get a sense of what the right thing is to, to do in, in these particular situations. Yeah, uh, that, that's awesome, right? I think uh, depends on how educated the patient is to be able to embrace some of this technology as well. Um, so, you know, classic use cases when it comes to health platforms, right? Not healthcare, not when you're sick, but more of that preventative services. I think patients, most patients, at least I am very open to embracing it and using it to really drive my behavior on a day-to-day -day basis. But as you rightly pointed out, the other challenge with that is, is that really going to lead to overutilization of healthcare? Uh, and how do we really tackle that challenge? Um, perfect. So, you know, I, I, I think as we are sort of um, coming to the end of our discussion here, I uh, want to get your thoughts on in a perfect world, right? Where do you see this going? Um, what do next five years look like as far as 
uh, AI uh, basically supporting healthcare services or is it really going to uh, what is it going to look like in 10 years I, I and what is your ideal vision for uh, what should be the significance of AI in the healthcare ecosystem we'll start with you this time Dr. Erickson okay well so what I'm, I'm going to start by bending the definition of AI a little bit you know the original AI product in medicine was for uh figuring out what a blood infection was and what the right antibiotic should be. Simple form of rules. That's what this intelligent process automation is, is saying, when you see this, do this, do that. That is something that I think actually could and should revolutionize medicine in this short five-year window. There are so many challenges of handoffs where, oh, I thought you did this. Or no, my way of doing this is better than your way, right? If we had one agreed upon process and if we had this IPA technology to help us make sure that every patient was taken care of in a right way, you can put timers on the step saying, oh, you forgot about Mrs. Jones in room 233, you know, and, and escalate that appropriately. And then you start to weave in some of these AI technologies as well. I think that actually has a lot more potential because we humans that are in, in the in the healthcare system, we make mistakes. And you know, having a process system that would keep us within the guardrails would be extremely valuable. Um, more generally, I do think multimodal AI is going to start to become the bigger thing. I think that's what we need to do to really solve more complex medical problems. Five years, it's probably pushing it. There, there are just a lot of things to be done with that. And, and uh, that, that may be starting to come on, say, in year four or so. But uh, I think in the short term, just getting the processes right and using this form of AI to help us do our processes correctly and efficiently, that's probably the bigger impact. Yeah, I, I totally agree with uh, Dr. Erickson. Um, you know, when I speak with hospital CEOs, uh, the, you know, I, I like to ask, like, what's the hospital of the future as well? And many of them say, like, the first thing that comes to mind is data-driven um, data driven hospitals, right? And what, what does that mean? It means that instead of having these silos of information all across, you know, all across the enterprise, uh, you have something that sits on top of all of the data. And, but having, just warehousing all the data isn't enough. You have this something that, Creates intel makes intelligent decisions uh, and drives action based on this data. And I think that's the role of AI, a sort of uh, operating system that is much more data-driven, much more intelligent, much more consistent, much more personalized. You get all what you want by having this. Um, uh, Dr. Erickson mentioned that intelligent process automation. I think that's a great phrase, but basically uh, an intelligent way to drive workflow. And I think this is where clinical AI will be uh, I think even the five years range, I think we'll see significant changes in how people operate. Already today, we see AI shifting from augmentation alone to literally driving the workflow for some use cases. Um, and I think we'll see it um, evolving more and more. And the beautiful thing that will happen uh, also relates to the multimodal point. I think that we'll start seeing the silos break, right? So now we have, you know, decision-making based on radiology or based on lab data or, or whatever. Um, and 
it's already happening that the walls are breaking down and data is becoming more clustered. So you're making intelligent decision based not just on imaging, but on like physicians on imaging and, and EHR data and labs and vitals and all of that. And there are already use cases today that utilize all of this information for the intelligent decision making. But I think 10 years from now, it's just going to be so ubiquitous that you'll see this will be, I imagine this will be the main way to drive workflow in the majority of use cases. That's awesome. Um, uh, re really great thoughts there. I, I really like the terms uh, intelligent process automation and a lot of what you said around uh, not just augment, but drive workflows, right? I think that's where the future is at a very high level. Uh, there's a lot to be uncovered around what it means and how we are going to get there, but that's what I think really makes it more exciting. And there's so much opportunity for everybody to really uh, define that future. So I just want to take a few minutes to uh, really summarize some key takeaways for our audience, right? And please feel free to add to this list um, as I do that here. Uh, so clearly, I think uh, we all believe that there is a future for AI. It's already proving its potential. Um, and there is a there is a need for us to really move to data-driven hospitalization to eliminate those silos. Uh, I think as we are trying to um, implement these AI algorithms in practice, in clinical practice, it's going to be important for us to give diligent thought to what the return on investment is, what the false positive and negative consequences are going to be, um, and then what gap is it really going to fill uh, within the workflow all with the intent of keeping it centered towards patient outcomes, right? Patient is at the center and core of this. Uh, the other things are really going to um, align appropriately. Uh, and then the, the last thing I, I do want to uh, focus on that we talked a lot about is that when people ask what is the potential AI has, I think it's the standardization of care. You mentioned this a lot around care pathways, right? It's that standardization of care pathways universally. Uh, th there are a lot of gaps there. Uh, there have been multiple attempts at really driving that value, but there's significant opportunity uh, for us to get there. And uh, importantly also, right, like I think uh, given the availability of data and if the change management challenge gets tackled, uh, the 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 research to really utilization and practice, that timeline is really not as, as, um, as you know, elongated. It's really very streamlined. There's still opportunity there, but it's not as bad as it used to be for bench to bedside. So again, great discussion. Thanks for being here. Um, I'm sure our audience have taken away a lot of uh, key information from this. With that, uh, thank you again.